Okay. Hey, folks, this is Mike from Battles of the First World War podcast. I'm here again with James Gregory um, to talk about his latest work, the soon-to-be-released book, Unraveling the Myth of Sergeant Alvin York, The Other 16. Um, before we get started, I do have um, lingering effects from a cold, so uh, I apologize for any awful coughing or hacking sounds. I'll, I'll really try to limit it. Um, but again, uh, James, several times on the show, but if you could, for any new listeners new to the show, could you, uh, just give us a brief introduction, man? Sure. No, I appreciate it. I don't know what this is. Number five, I think now. I think so. That I've been on the show. I think so, so man. Last you're, time you're we said guest. it, we'll say it again. You know, suck it, Laughlander, I win. Uh, nice. Being nice petty. Time. But yes, uh, I'm James Gregory, uh, Currently a, a PhD candidate at the University of Oklahoma, uh, where I'm also an instructor and I am an adjunct professor at Rose State College. And this book, Unraveling the Myth of Sergeant Alvin York, the Other 16, has been a project that's been ongoing for uh, four years now. And uh, it's, gar it's garnered a lot of attention, both positive and negative. And, uh, you know, that's all right. So controversy sells. So I'm hoping that this discussion will be the first time people can actually get some of the details of this work uh, before it comes out in December. Cool. Cool. Thank you for that. Now for, again, for those listeners new to the podcast or who haven't yet heard our first discussion on this same subject um, that took place three years ago, um, hard to believe that that James and I first spoke three years ago now it was in a pre-COVID world and of course um <clears throat> as we all know like uh, it, that whole COVID period just added a whole blurred sense of time to things but mm -hmm. I, I I digress I apologize so just to back up a bit folks um James and I have spoken about the other 16 before it was, it was in the autumn of, of 2019 um, in an episode that is also called uh, the other 16 at the time, James had just written an article um, for an army publication. I, was it the infantry journal? Yes. Infantry magazine. Yeah. Infantry magazine. Okay. Where, where we, we talked about this very subject now James is coming on here again because the other 16 has gone from an article into an entire book and an exploration of the, the York patrol of, of October 8th, 1918. So, um, how did, how did the article go? How did, how did the article become a book? Um, or like, was this your intention the whole time, uh, James or, or, or did it just kind of, you know, kind of just kind of snowball that way. Uh, well, the uh, original intention was always a book. Um, okay. So the book was always there. Now, the article actually came about because, you know, uh, as you know, COVID, we couldn't see that coming. So right. I wanted just to, to get my work out uh, as soon as possible because I didn't know when I could get a publisher. And mm -hmm. even that process has taken like three years to get the book published by Texas A&M University. And so the article was just me getting the word out, getting my work research there so that I had some sort of reputation to build this on. Um, but from there to here, I mean, what the book says is worlds apart from what that article said. The, this has been 
uh, so much deeper, and I've found so much more information since that article. Um, so the book was always the intention, but it basically, you could consider that article as you know the the preamble. I mean, if you want, right? It was the first evolution of what this project was, and it also helped me understand where I, and talking with you when we did our first podcast. Yeah, that it helped me understand where I wanted to go with this story and what my argument actually was. All right. All right. All right. So <clears throat> James very graciously um, gave me an advanced copy of the, uh, of the manuscript that I have read through um, as, as thoroughly as I could. I even took notes on it. Um, one thing about this book is that the one thing that, that really took hold of me in, in reading um, Unraveling the Myth of Sergeant Alvin York is that Alvin York himself is only ever in the background. So here you truly do focus on the other 16 men of that patrol. Um, so when and how did the York patrol story begin to evolve from a day's combat on the Western Front to something bigger. Sure. Well, when I started this, this is four years, and I can tell you the exact moment. It was like September 2018 when I get a, a Facebook message from Steven Gerard, who obviously you've had on here from uh, discussing Blancmont, yep. saying, hey, go watch this video. And it was a video of some of the descendants of the other 16 talking about their family members and how the story of Alvin York wasn't as everyone thought it was. And I thought, you know, that was interesting. And I started looking into it, but all I ever knew was York and all these books were about York and how, um, you know, backing York's story. So I had no reason to doubt it. So I started this project as a story of Sergeant Alvin York and his day. And I just thought, well, why don't we go ahead and include the other man's story into it just to get a rounder picture? Mm -hmm. But as I started digging into it um, and talking to these family members, which the family members had been burned in the past by other historians, other authors that wanted to work with them. Um, the families graciously opened up like the documents they had. And then these authors and historians uh, didn't bother to use it or just ignored it. So it took two years. Stephen and I, I actually flew up from Oklahoma to uh, meet Steve in Pennsylvania. And then we drove up to Massachusetts. Uh, or no, we were in Connecticut. We drove to Connecticut okay. to meet yeah. the families. And once we finally got access to the documents, I realized that the story of Alvin York, as everyone writes it, mentions the other men very little. They're, they're non-participants in the battle, um, but they're also always shown as bitter, jealous, angry men who just wanted the attention York got, wanted the money, and no one ever gave them any credit. Uh, no author ever. even And you had uh, James Carl Nelson on to talk about his book, The York Patrol, which is where I know you get that term from that. But the reality is, it wasn't the York patrol. Uh, York wasn't even charge of the thing, right? If there was any nomenclature that's correct, it's the early patrol for Bernard early. Right. Yeah. But the, the reality is that no one took the other men serious. And then as an extension, no one took their families serious. 
And so as I really started to dig in and read all the secondary literature and then read all the primary sources that I could find and then what the families provided, I realized that this was not a story of Alvin York's heroics. This was a story of 17 men that went into this ravine on a suicide mission. And when they came out, one man got the credit. And when the other men tried to speak out, tried to have their voice heard, they were shunned and pushed out of the picture. And so I wanted to know why. So you're very correct in saying that York is in the background because in reality, the battle is only one chapter. All right, the one thing that all these other authors will dedicate a whole book to is only one chapter in my book, right? The rest of it is the unfolding of what happened to these other men and how that story of how these other men are pushed out of it, that in itself reveals the creation of the myth of Sergeant Alvin York. And maybe I should mention this here up front because I know this is a sticking point with people. Um, and I've seen a lot of people get angry at me um, for using the word myth, the myth of Sergeant Alvin York. They, they accuse me of I'm attacking York, but people don't understand what I mean, right? We've all heard a story. And in this case, you had the story of Alvin York, which is the part that is his story. And then you get the legend of Alvin York. That's the period in the 20s when all these authors start writing about him. That's okay. the legend of Alvin and then when you get to the movie in the 1940s, Hollywood creates new things as part of the story and create a myth. And that's what we're really talking about here. The myth of Sergeant Alvin York. The, and uh, I'm sure after this, I can actually bring this up, right? This is the myth. The myth is that 16, Alvin York and 16 men went into this ravine and they captured some Germans. And then all of a sudden, some German machine guns turned around and opened fire, uh, taking out all the non-commissioned officers. And so York was the last one standing. And York crawls up the hill and he sneaks over to the side and he starts shooting all the Germans while all the other men are hidden. And then York charges up the hill and takes out these machine guns. And then a bunch of Germans charge him with their bayonets and he shoots them from back to front. And then at the end, the Germans say, oh, my God, we surrender. Please stop killing us. Mm -hmm. And York takes them back and receives credit for 132 men single-handedly. That's the myth. And that is the story that most people know. And so by discussing the other 16, I'm not trying to say York is an asshole and I think he's the worst person alive. I'm not doing that. But the story is there were others there. This should not be a story of one man. This should be a story of 17 men and their actions that day. And so the story just evolved naturally with the research. It's cool. Cool. Well, that's, that's excellent that, that you're clarifying that point. This, this isn't an attack on, on Alvin York. It's, it's just investigating the, the, the myth, as you put it, uh, pretty, pretty deeply here. Yeah, I'm a mediator. right? As a historian, I'm the middleman. The reality is I'm just telling you what the sources say. Yep. You know, I'm not here making these accusations up because I have no, no information. I'm just trying to say what the, uh, the sources themselves say. And so if people are mad at me, 
they should be mad at what sources they've read because the reality is the actual documentation does not support what they believe with this myth. And now we'll, <clears throat> uh, I suspect we'll, we'll sh- surely get into that in just a little bit here. Yeah. Um, but now actually we, we can probably get into it here right now. So, cause my next question for you, uh, two parts here were, you know, how were the other members of the patrol treated at the time? Um, so like immediately following, um, the actions of, of the morning of October 8th and, uh, were they, were they already being sidelined at that time or did that occur later? Sure. Well, and so for the other men, you know, obviously people know of you are, but what they don't know is that the other 16, right? You've got Bernard Early, you've got Otis Merrithew, Joseph Kornacki, Patrick Donahue, Percy Beardsley, Mario Muti, Michael Cecina, George Wills, Theodore Sock, Thomas Johnson, Marion Damowski, Carl Swanson, Murray Savage, Fred Waring, Ralph Weiler, and William Wine. And out of these 16, six of these men are killed in that ravine, right? So only 11 men come out of this ravine. And are these the six that you're showing right here from Demowski to one? Yeah, so for those that can see, that watch this YouTube video, these this these are the six who were killed in that ravine, right? I mean, this is this is a a, a group of immigrants, a group of uh, there's an amalgamation. I mean, looking here at this image of the six killed, mm-hmm. uh, Marion Demowski was Polish. Yep. Uh, Ralph Weiler was actually Native American. Right. And then the other three were born here in the United States. But this unit, I mean, out of the other 16, you've got three Polish, yep. three uh, Irish, and two Italians, plus uh, Native American and other American-born citizens, right? So this is yeah. quite an amalgamation. So if you play all, all these things together, uh, immediately after the battle, the way the story works is once the battle's over, You've got, which maybe, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should talk about the battle from their perspective for this one. So I know we did it for the last podcast, but I can make it quick. Sure. Sure. So what, so, um, just before you do like, so in, in just talking about the other 16, um, it always really strikes me that it, it really is like, like their, their parent division, the 82nd, it really was like an, an all American unit, um, mm. Of, of immigrants and, and native born Americans and, and native Americans here. So, um, that, that part always, always really stands out to me. Um, another thing, um, that, that I've appreciated with your book is that the battle, the, the actual fighting is not the main part of the book. You really did focus on the, on the investigation. Um, so that is, that is very much appreciated. Now, folks, if, you know, when you pick up James's book and if, if you haven't, you know, if you know nothing about Sergeant York, you, you will get the background, of course. Um, but for those of you who already know the story and want to find out more, um, this book is not dominated by the actions. It's dominated by by the investigation into into what happened afterwards, which um, which I find um really really refreshing so um so yeah james if you can give us a a a rundown of the actions of uh sure right and and this is this is the the story you know when you take into account uh not only the other men and their statements but i also did german research i had i went and got 
uh, my when God, I should say, a friend, Brad Posey, he went to all the German archives, did the research, pulled the German units, pulled the statements, and then had them translated and approved by a court-appointed translator. So these are as clearly documented as you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also brought in German perspectives. All right, And then the archaeology of Dr. Tom Nolan, how all these things play together to show this battle. Right. So on the morning of on 8 October, it's a foggy morning. The men of the 328th Infantry Regiment are pushing forward out of Chateau Cherry. And G Company is moving along on the left flank and they become inundated with machine gun fire from the hills. Mm-hmm. Yes. So ju- just a moment. So, folks, if, if you're watching the YouTube video, so what James has right now is a uh, is a terrain map, uh, uh, a screenshot of a terrain map. And on the right, headed towards the, the lower right, you see the layout of a uh, of a French village um, that is Chatel Chery. Um, and then right next to it, right to the north of it, you see Hill 223, which was a German um uh, a German held held hill and directly to the south of it and and west of the village, immediately west of the village is um, Hill 244, correct? Uh, so that's one thing that always uh, fascinates me mm-hmm. is that all the records, they never agree. Like this is Hill 223, but they also call this Hill 223. Okay. And so the terminology always pops up. So even for Alvin York, his thing, uh, the whole... Uh, fight is supposed to happen on Hill 223, right? Yeah. So I've seen that one, but yes, thank you for explaining yeah. that to this this map. But uh, yeah, Hill 223 is this one, but I've also seen it expressed as this hill. Okay, okay. Um, and, I, um, and, and for listeners, um, so American maps, you know, Amer- American officers, you know, they the AEF struggled with getting accurate maps. And um, one thing that I've seen is, is the heights recorded on, on especially like the ABMC maps, they do not correspond to French maps um, that cover the very same areas. So, you know, um, not even the maps uh, agree, but, but again, on, on this map, you know, right-hand side, um, we are looking at Chatel Chery. We've got the two Hills, and, you know, right next to the village. And, and those were uh, the objectives. Yeah. And so the obje- and the main objective that day was the Dupeville Railroad that's on this yes. side. Correct. So when G Company starts pushing forward that morning, they, they're inundated with machine gun fire. And their uh, commanding officer, Kirby Stewart, is killed. And so command passes to Sergeant Harry Parsons. And Parsons decides to send uh, basically a suicide mission, send this unit, this patrol, to silence the machine gun. So he, he selects Sergeant Bernard Early, acting Sergeant Bernard Early, I should say. That's that's one thing that will come up, so excuse me if I misspeak. But uh, technically, Early is an acting sergeant that day, uh, but just in the same that Alvin York is an acting corporal. He's actually a private first class, mm-hmm. but he's an acting corporal that day. So they get tasked, 17 men are tasked to silence them. So Bernard Early... And if you see on the map, it's this purple one, so I'll try to explain it for those of you listening. Um, They are tasked to silence the machine guns on the left, and so they take their their little patrol, and they go south, south from G Company. They use the fog as cover. They use the woods, because this is in the Merz-Argonne Forest. They use the woods. They come around through the south and get around the hill, go down and come up from the south 
to get behind the machine guns. And Early leads them successfully without being seen all the way around. And behind this, this hill is a ravine with a creek that runs through it. And they come up to this creek and they see two Germans getting water from the creek. They spook them. The Germans run. Early and his men follow after them. And then Early slows them down and he breaks the men up into squads. And Alvin York, he led a show-show light machine uh, assault, you know, light machine gun uh, squad. Okay. Right? So Alvin York is in command of a squad with a show-show, which is held by uh, Percy Beardsley, and then two ammunition bears. Now, they go to the right, and Early goes to the left, and the other squad with Murray Savage goes up the middle. And they come across this German unit that have apparently been running all night to get to this position and they are tired and they have stopped to basically eat breakfast. They are sitting down They are They don't know what's going on. I mean, there's a massive American attack happening on the other side of that hill. But for this moment, they have taken a breather. And so early in his men scatter, some basically line up and then open fire on these unknowing Germans. Which undoubtedly kills, and some of the reports say they probably killed 15 men in this open volley. Because these men aren't even holding weapons. They're eating. And so Early tells them to stop firing, and they move in. The Germans have put their hands up. They've surrendered. They think the Americans have gotten around on them. And Alvin York and his show-show squad is ordered by Early, since they are on the far right, and they have a better uh, vantage point, to keep them undercover. So Early... Uh, and Otis Merrithew, which is William Cutting in some of the stories. Um, mm-hmm. William, he he signed his draft registration card as William Cutting because his mom didn't want him to sign up for the draft. Right. And so when he was drafted, he served under the alias William Cutting. But after the war, he finally had the War Department change his files to represent Otis Merrithew. Uh, so I'm going to keep calling him Merrithew. Yep. Um, Merrithew and Early line up the prisoners and they start, you know, taking their weapons and Merrithew takes the German officer's pistol. And as soon as they line up these Germans, you know, they've probably got 80, 85 Germans and early is walking to tell um, Joseph Kornacki to, you know, lead them out of there. When all of a sudden from the slope, a squad of Bavarian sappers notice what was going on and they yell out for the Germans to drop. The German prisoners drop to the ground and these German uh, Bavarian sappers open fire. And now, you know, the stories say there were 35 machine guns. There wasn't a single machine gun firing on these men. There was a machine gun there, but they did not have time to set it up. And if you think about it, 30 Bavarian sappers opening fire in a tiny ravine is going to sound like a machine gun going off, right? So the Germans drop and the Bavarians open fire. Now, immediately, Murray Savage is killed. Um, some of the accounts like to say that all the men were immediately knocked out. No, they weren't. The archaeology actually proves that several of these men managed to fire off several rounds before they were hit or killed. So the men returned fire. Uh, Alvin York and Percy Beardsley, since they're still in that good vantage point, they have a great shot. And Beardsley has a show-show, automatic rifle. So he opens fire with this automatic rifle in the middle of the fight. And something happens, either it jams or he runs out of ammo. His ammunition bearers are both killed. Ralph Weiler and Fred Waring are killed. So he has no more ammo. So he pulls out his forty-five and uses it 
On the other side, uh, Bernard Early is hit multiple times, three times. Uh, he's severely wounded. He goes down, but Early is still conscious. And he gives command to Otis Merrithew. Now, Otis Merrithew continues fighting back, and then he gets hit in the left arm. Now, the stories of Alvin York always say that he's knocked out of the fight, but he, he always said, no, he wasn't. It was a flesh wound, and the medical records actually prove that. It was just a flesh wound. Okay. He pulled out his revolver and continued the fight, continued firing back at these Germans, as well as several other men. Now, there were several that huddled around the German prisoners, uh, keeping an eye on them. York is firing back. Beardsley's firing back. Merrithew, Kornacki, Musi, Sassina, Johnson. They're firing their weapons, all involved in this shootout. After 15 minutes or so, the German officer, Vollmer, he declares that he can't. this is ridiculous. His men are getting hit. The Germans are getting shot on accident. Mm -hmm. And so he yells, blows his whistle, and yells at the Bavarians to stop firing and to surrender because this is not this is not a good position. So they surrender. They come down the hill. And now you've got six dead Americans. And now you've got 11. And out of those 11, uh, Bernard Early is severely wounded. Right. Uh, Otis Matthews wounded, still in command, because he was given command, not York. Like the story says, how uh, was given command and uh, Mario Musi, uh, I believe, if, I, if I'm getting this correct in my memory, is also wounded. Okay. Right? So you've got three wounded Americans. And so Marathew orders York to march at the head of the group, lead them out. And out of the ravine they go to the north. They come around. They run into a few machine gun nests. And Volmer is forced to make them surrender. And so they surrender, and the Americans, as they get out of there, a German artillery barrage opens up, so the Americans and the German prisoners have to book it. And in that process, Patrick Donahue gets a piece of shrapnel on his shoulder from this artillery barrage. So now you've got four wounded Americans. Um, well, the Company G had kept pushing, and so by the time they come out of this ravine, they run in to Company G. And at that point... Matthew is brought over to a first aid station. They get a bandage on his arm. He tells Sergeant Parsons, hey, look at my, here's my pistol. You know, I told you I'd get one. And when he comes out of the medic tent, the first aid station, uh, Alvin York has been placed in charge by uh, Ely. And I'm, I'm probably getting the name mistaken. I'm just drawing a blank right now. But they count up the prisoners and they have 132. Okay. So Alvin York at that moment is the only non-commissioned officer, albeit an acting one, that's not wounded. So they say, all right, York, you're going to take him back. And they give York several other members of Company G to help march these 132 prisoners back. So Early, uh, Beardsley, uh, you know, all these guys walk with them until they get to the, the road where the ambulances are. And that's when Early, Matthew, Musi, and uh, Donahue are evacuated. Okay. So now that leaves Alvin York as the only non-commissioned officer uh, leading these 132 prisoners. And when he gets back to the prisoner pen, he's the one that takes credit for turning in these 132 prisoners. Right. That's how it happens. Okay. York gets the credit because he just so happens to be the last one standing when they turned it in. 
Right, right. Not that he was the last one standing coming out of that ravine. That's not true. The other officers were there. And it just so happens every author that has talked about it likes to skip over that part. Um, But he wasn't. And so he turns over the prisoners and they return to their unit. So you ask me, how were they treated immediately after? Now, some of these men, even others from Company G reported that, you know, when Alvin York showed up, he told the, the Captain Danforth all about how he captured 132 Germans. And the war's not over. So the men that are wounded, they get back in the firing line and they continue the attack. Right? They keep going. And that's that's basically the end of it. Um, after they, they capture their objective, they end up being taken off the line and then they never go back on because November 11th comes around before. Right. Right. So their war's over. Um, in that time, you get... Alvin York telling people about his story and he tells Captain Danforth, who tells Duncan, Lindsay, all these officers, they start talking about it. Um, in October, York is recommended for the DSC. He gets the DSC and the Captain Tyler, the, the uh, divisional chaplain takes Alvin York on like a six week talking tour around France to talk about his religious faith and his own story about how he captured 132 Germans. And the other men are just left out. Right? They're, they're left out of the story. And so nothing really comes up until 1919. Okay. When you start to get the investigation of the Medal of Honor. That's where things start really coming to a head. Okay. Okay. Now, in your book, you talk a lot about um post-war u.s army um so this just leading into the next question here is like why might u.s army officers namely 82nd division um commander major general duncan and his subordinate uh 164th brigade commander brigadier general uh lindsey um, why, why might those two officers have had an interest in making sure that York received a lot of press? Well, that is a great question, Mike. So that's always been my, my, my big beef with this story, right? You, God forbid, I question Alvin York, right? I'm not questioning the Medal of Honor. I'm questioning why he got it. And so I got Alvin York's service file. It's also digitized on the National Archives, so anyone can go look at it now. But all the records of his investigation are there. And so I wondered, why is this important? Because all the books, and anyone who wants to argue the story, they say, well, there was an investigation. That's the end of it. That's the end all. Mm -hmm. Right? There was a Medal of Honor investigation. How dare you question those officers? You know, they did the, the work. There's affidavits. That's the end of it. Well, that's not true. None of that's true. And the number one question was, why? Why did these officers want to create this situation where um, Alvin York gets the Medal of Honor? He's not special. Even if he did do this alone, he's not unique, right? A same day, you get Sam Sampler. Um, and I, I am blanking. He's from Oklahoma. That's why I always use him as an example. And I can't remember if he's 36 or 90th. But 36. on October 8th, which... Um, on October 8th, he gets the Medal of Honor for single-handedly charging a machine gun and capturing some German prisoners, right? So right. York is not unique. 
in the slightest. So why? So if we look at Duncan and Lindsay, um, they have the most to gain. And it took me a while to figure this out. And it turns out that uh, Brig- uh, Major General Hunter Liggett, who was in charge and over both of them, he had a, a, an assistant named Stockpole. And Stockpole recorded the general's thoughts and how he felt about his subordinates. Ooh, and wow. this, and for those of you who can't see this on YouTube, um, when I read this diary, it was very telling up to 8 October. Remember, 8 October is the day York and all of this happens. Well, if you read Liggett's aide's diary, on October 7th, he writes that he thinks that Duncan is, uh, and I quote, thick as mud and not worth a damn, right? And he thinks that Lindsay, um, he says, due to Lindsay's inability to capture and hold Hill 223, uh, that General Liggett believes some other brigade commander would do much better than Lindsay, who seems to have flubbed around all day. And then you get to, um, you know, October 9th, and this continues. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped 8th. If you look at the the entry in the diary on October 8th, Mm -hmm. it says uh, Liggett is entirely dissatisfied with Duncan and Lindsay and the work of the colonels. Orders have not been carried out properly. Handling and maneuvering of troops has been confused and amateurish. He thinks little of Duncan and inclines to the view that Lindsay better go. Right. And then the next day, October 9th, uh, which is probably one of the most damning, he says that the 82nd through Duncan is still more fatigued and about 1,200 men in all that can be mustered for Lindsay's brigade. The others and many officers being presumably hiding out in the woods and straggling down the quieter paths towards the mess and kitchen. And for Duncan, Stackpole recorded on uh, 9 October that Duncan's outfit has not moved much, if any, today. And Duncan does not seem to know what he's about anyway. He's soft, stupid, and deceitful. And then Stockpole puts into uh, parentheses, he says, Duncan thinks he ought to be reinforced, relieved, concerted generally, and given a DSC and a city mansion for his distinguished service and bungling everything, standing still and losing his outfit. I, I mean, if that that's out of the the, the, the diary of the aide, that these men are not in good standing with General Liggett. Right. And if you look uh, in it, the biggest failure in Liggett's opinion is Hill 223. And it just so happens that Hill 223 is the one where York is. Right. 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 Interesting connection here. And, and folks, Hunter Liggett, um, uh, Lieutenant General, uh, soon to be Lieutenant General, and, and we're going to cover him on the podcast here soon. He is about, you know, a few days after October 8th, he assumes command of the AEF First Army because uh-huh. uh, Pershing, General Pershing, relinquishes command uh, of that of, of First Army to Hunter Liggett. And Liggett is the one he's going to take his time. In, in the second half of October, he's going to ready the men. And then on November 1st, 1918, he launches like the, the major assault that, that shatters the, uh, the German lines. So Liggett yeah. is, he was already important. He's, he's been AEF first corps commander since the beginning of the offensive. Now he's going to become the first army commander. And he is a, he's, he's from what I've read of him, he's, he's in a, fairly like brilliant general, uh, really guy who's very competent, very good at his job. Um, so his, 
he's got a lot of um he's got a lot of power behind him. Yeah, and that's probably and I argue that's kind of what saved them is the fact that on October 11th he goes to First Army, right? So that's probably what saved them from being canned like he wanted. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at this and you think okay, so now we've got two men uh who do not have good reputations. They're in hot water already with their commanding officers. What can they do and why do they care? And you got to remember that the officers, the, the these generals, their rank is just for the duration of the war, right? The, the United States does not need 58 generals in peacetime. Right. So these men know that after the war, they will be reduced to their pre-war ranks. And the only way to cement your rank and make sure that doesn't happen is to, you know, saddle up your horse onto something that's going to keep your reputation high. And what is better than this story of a man who was a conscientious objector, turned warrior, and now claims to have captured 132 Germans single-handedly. And that's exactly what happened, right? Duncan basically becomes Alvin York's press agent, right? Duncan's the first one to tell the reporters about York. He, and and this is in France in October, he's telling these reporters, hey, I've got this guy, you should, you should hear this story. Duncan's telling people about Alvin York and about his story. And Duncan is pushing it and pushing it. He's, he's trying to attach himself to this story because, and I, I could be wrong, and I apologize if I screw this up, but I think Alvin York is the only Medal of Honor from the 82nd, or there's two of them, and the other one was killed. Um, I'm going uh, to have to research yeah. that as well. Let me, let me I'll have to check that. I knew the answer, but I, I should have thought about that. Um, either way, he's an important figure here, right? And so you fast forward to... February of 1919. And all of a sudden, you get Captain Danforth putting in a recommendation that Alvin York should be given the Medal of Honor. Right? And what's important here are the dates. So I want you to keep the dates in mind. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Danforth puts it in. York should be given the Medal of Honor. This is on February 5th. Right? Well, in general, you know, I'll ask you this, Mike. How long do you think a Medal of Honor investigation should last? Uh, my understanding is, uh, from what I've seen, is it, it can take years sometimes. I mean, I'm not even talking about World War One guys, but we have a um, uh, a senior NCO um, who just earned posthumously uh, just earned the Medal of Honor for actions in Iraq that he undertook in. 2003 or 2005 um our friend steven gerard actually served uh with this gentleman sorry um i, I don't want to mispronounce his name right now um, yeah but, no. but that that investigation took took years years right and years. let's say it's even yeah. in wartime or in peacetime either way weeks all right all these things all right so keep that in mind right so february 5th is the day that the document says it is recommended that sergeant alvin york be awarded the Medal of Honor, and they say, okay, start the investigation. So then February 6th, 
you get these documents, the affidavit. Okay. And there are six affidavits, right? And I'm going to use affidavits in quotes. This is what everyone refers to in the story of Alvin York. They say, the other men signed affidavits to Alvin York. Well, if you go pull the affidavits, they are not the personal affidavits of those men. They are Alvin York's statement. That's it. They're all identical. They are not the individual perspective. They are not Theodore Sock saying, oh, I saw Alvin York do this, or Bernard Early saying, well, I saw Alvin York do this. They are Alvin York's direct statement. So what Alvin York says, and then the men are signing these. Now, even some of the men don't even agree they signed these on purpose or that they signed them at all, right? Uh, Theodore Sock here, he's listed as with an X, this is his mark because he can't sign his name. That's bullshit. He signed his draft registration card. Right? He knows how to sign his own name. And because a lot of immigrants were in the 82nd, Camp Gordon had an English school that taught all of them how to sign, how to write and speak English. So by the end of it, all of these immigrants should at least know how to sign their name. And so to find that there's two of these affidavits signed with an X as if these men are just illiterate immigrants is ridiculous but that's you know another point yep either way you have these affidavits on february 6th or these sworn statements right on february 6th then on february 7th you get this investigation team going out with alvin york to the site and having york show them around and tell them what happened and after this little uh, trip with Alvin York, no other men, mind you, only York is invited. Also, they never asked Bernard Early or Otis Merrithew, the other non-coms, for a statement. So they never got statements. And they never asked Johnson or Musi, right? So they automatically didn't even ask those guys. But after this little you know, jog around the area, you get the document that same day, February 7th, saying, um, I personally investigated this case, and in my opinion, the conduct of the soldier merits the Medal of Honor. All right? That is three days. February 5th, I recommend Alvin York. February 7th, we've completed our investigation. Three days. And if you really think about it, that means those statements that were signed on February 6th, the officers had already taken Alvin York's statement wrote it down, had the men sign it before they even went back to the site to do an investigation. So if there's ever a case of blatant, uh, you know, we've already decided York's going to get this, it's this, right? Those statements were already written up and signed before they did the investigation on the site, right? That's ridiculous. And it shows that these officers are trying to push Alvin York's Medal of Honor. And like I said, the men take issue with this. Here, I'm free. I'm sorry for those of you on the podcast, but for those of you looking at it on YouTube, that's Theodore Sock's signature on his affidavit. And below is his registration card that has his signature, right? This is ridiculous, right? The, there's these issues. So, either way, the investigation is a sham. That is not an investigation. That is some officers who decided to do this and they just need to make a, 
a token uh, attempt to look like they did an investigation. And on that investigation was a man named George Petullo. And George Petullo is going to be the one who creates the myth of Alvin York because he's there talking to York about his story and writing about this conscientious objector. And he writes this story, The Second Elder Gives Battle, which is published in uh, April, April 26th of 1919. This is the thing that creates Alvin York's reputation back home. And the other men are not included. They are included by only some mention, oh, the men hid behind a bush, or they didn't, they are non-participants in the battle. And then at the end, he includes these affidavits as if they support it, right? But the army, even uh, Pershing, actually, Pershing wanted these officers to do an investigation to see if any of the other men deserve medals. And they came back with, no, they don't deserve any medals. Now, by the time it got to Lindsay, he mm-hmm. changed it from uh, deserves no medals. He changed it to uh, does not deserve the DSC, which led him uh, the ability that he did actually um, write five of the men for um, general orders, which later qualified them for the Silver Star. Um, but only uh, Percy Beardsley, Cornacki, George Wills, Patrick Donahue, and Mario Lucy are, or Cecina, I'm sorry. Cecina is the one that's just written up. Only those five are written into orders for um, no general orders for Silver Stars. That's it. Interesting. Inter- um, I mean, se- several things, several mm-hmm. thoughts going on here. Um, first of all, um, post-war, uh, General uh, John J. Pershing, like he, he actually wanted uh, Lieutenant Samuel Woodfill to be like the shining um, example of the American soldier of, of yes. this war. Um, and he felt, um, and Pershing, you know, as much as he thought about this, I think like he, he was not, you know, quote unquote, happy that, that um, Alvin York grab got, got that spotlight or, or let me put it this way, that, that the spotlight was put on Alvin York rather than, than, uh, Lieutenant Woodfill, who yeah, they actually misquote that quite often. You always see people say that. Well, Pershing says he's the greatest soldier of World War One. That's not true. the The document they keep citing actually says that um, there are many soldiers that exemplify the spirit of the army, and those include Samuel Woodfill, Alvin York, and Charles Whittlesey. So we actually put Samuel Woodfill at the top of that list. So you're yeah, you're correct there. Yeah. Um, also, for, like just just to step back a little bit, just as far as um, y- you know, officers kind of push pushing this Medal of Honor investigation in just a few days. Um, it just makes one thing that came to mind while I while I was reading uh, unraveling the the excuse me unraveling the myth of Sergeant York um, came to mind now. For listeners, like I'll have you know that um, the the United States Army is an organization very, uh, very near and dear to my heart. Um, I I served in that organization. Um, now, that organization is staffed with human beings, and human beings, you know, despite you know we we, we try our best, sometimes sometimes we stumble. Um, 
It made me think of, of 2004, the war in Afghanistan with, um, with Pat Tillman. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the former football player who went on to become an army ranger. And I remember at the time when, when he was killed, that the story was that he died fighting the, the enemy, the, the Taliban. Um, but then, and I remember being, you know, at the time being, being disappointed to hear later that, that he actually had died of, of what turned out to be friendly fire. Um, so I want listeners to make their own decisions. Um, but these things happen. Sometimes stories are pushed like a, a, a narrative is pushed. I mean, we, we all know it. So uh, I just wanted to, to make that, that comment. Yeah, there. Now to, to bring it back to George Petullo. He, now he is, is another interesting case because like he kind of, he, he got exclusive rights to tell this story. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It was part of the agreement. He would write about it if he was the only one allowed, which is kind of funny. Cause he's not even the first technically, uh, uh, Chase, uh, Cummings Chase, he wrote an article about York. It's very small. It came out like a month before Petullo. But yes, uh, Petullo's thing was, I will write an article about this, but I want exclusive rights and I want to be the one that puts this out first. Which is interesting you bring that up because in my research, I found, or I was sent, uh, George Petullo's original draft that went through the censor. And so I can tell you that details, like including the number killed and how much York did, was edited. It was not in the original story. He he changed the numbers for by the time it got down. And he did that because while he had exclusive rights, Duncan and Lindsay, especially Duncan, Duncan had to sign off on it. So he could not, and this is not just me telling, I mean, this is what York and Duncan both said in public that that story would not be published if it was not okayed by Duncan first. And therefore, it follows the story the officers want told, that Alvin York did this single-handed and that he deserves all the credit. Isn't that something? Wow. 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 All right. George Petullo's story breaks um, this is the story that helps put York on the on the on the national map in, in the right. national consciousness. Um, of course, we get into the 1920s. York is a very popular figure. He is he is an American hero. Um, now, books are written about him. We have Scahill's book um, and we have who's the other gentleman's name? Cohen. Cohen. Cohen also writes a book about him. Um these and Cohen's books, first. Yeah, Cohen's first. Cohen's first and then Scahill. 28, yeah. And these books throughout the 1920s, they help create the the legend of, of uh, Alvin York. Yeah. Now, can you, moving into the late 1920s, um, can you tell us a bit about the uh, the U.S. Army War College's exposition of 1929? Because this also helps. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, well, and I'd like to bring up with the Cohen and Scahill real quick that Cohen in his book, he's actually the one that invents the turkey shoot where York shoots the officers from back to front. Yep. Cohen made that up. Um, the early stories, Petullo and uh, even G. Edward Buxton's uh, 82nd Division History, 
simply mentioned that some Germans were running to up the ravine and York saw them and he shot the officer and then shot a couple others. And there's no back to front. And those articles like Petullo, he just says, York's skill is from all the shooting he used to do back home. And then somehow Cohen took it and changed it as a back to front story. And then Thomas Scahill in 1928, when he wrote it, uh, you know, he wrote this book about York. He invents a lot of that mountain dialect. Right. You know, he didn't, right. didn't really talk like that. Um, but also Scahill's a known like liar. Uh, the biography on Scahill is all about the fact that like his entire life, he kept getting in trouble for making up lies and changing facts. Um, kind of like the fact that he was an Australian, served in the Australian army at Gallipoli. And then he lost his vision and became this really famous blind poet. And then he's in the United States and he miraculously gets his vision back. And then he goes on with his life and writes this book with York. All right. So as, as I said, you know, we're sometimes humans stumble. Humans more. being humans. Yeah. So <laughs> through the twenties, I mean, that's it. The, there's, there's really nothing. Yep. Uh, the other men go off. I mean, for those of you seeing these photos, this is Otis Matthew as a truck driver and that's Bernard early at his, at his wedding. Okay. Um, you know, these other men, they come home. Now, they're they're mad, right? They're, they're upset. Uh, they see in the newspaper and the Saturday Evening Post all about Alvin York and how he single-handedly did all of this. And the other men are rightfully upset. I mean, they were there. They were part of the battle. And all of a sudden, they're relegated to, uh, you know, non-participants, right? Now, they're frustrated. They're aggravated. Um they tell their friends and families, but that's it. It doesn't make national news. It doesn't, they're not, and as some like Mastriano wrote in his book, that they're starting campaigns against the army to write. No, they're not. No, they're not. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. They are just trying to live their lives. And Otis Merrithew, remember, he was wounded and bailed out. His buddies couldn't find William Cutting after the war, so they all thought he was dead. So all these men think that, uh, Cutting's dead, but they've all continued on. And it's not until 1927 when the American Legion magazine writes an article about Alvin York uh, and publishes it in February that another uh, soldier, Oscar Johnson, who served in Company D, he wrote back to the American Legion and he said, um, I don't want to criticize, but you could have mentioned the names of the other men who were killed and fought with Sergeant York. Um, he says, in all the publicity Sergeant York has received, the only mention of these survivors has been that six members returned and they're never named. Um, and he says, I knew their names in France, but I don't know them now. Surely the other 16 men in the patrol must have been some aid in capturing the prisoners. So this is the first time where these men are being talked about. And so the American Legion does their research and they, they publish an article later that year saying, indeed, you're right. There were 16 other men. Here are their names, and here's some of the uh, um, general orders they were mentioned in. So that's it. This is the first time the other 16 are nationally talked about. And this leads to a few interviews locally. The newspapers track them down and say, hey, we saw this article in the American Legion. We want to talk to you. And the other men, you know, they say their piece. They, this is what happened, and that's it. You know, that's all they do. It's a local newspaper piece. No big deal. 1929 rolls around. And the U.S. Army War College wants to host an event, and they decide they want to bring Alvin York in. And so they're going to do an event, you know, breaking through the Argonne with Alvin York, and it's going to reenact Alvin York's heroics. 
Uh, Scahill's book had just coming out the year before. Uh, Alvin York is trying to establish a Bible college. And so they're going to use some of these proceeds to go to this Bible college. Cool. So they need to first do the research to stage it. And Swindler, Henry Swindler, the officer assigned to do the research, he finds that all the records are too confusing and that there is no actual like evidence of what happened. And so he writes letters to um, Sergeant, uh, oh, I'm sorry, he writes to Parsons, he writes to Duncan, to Lindsay, uh, to G. Edward Buxton and says, hey, can you help me out? And they reply with, I mean, we could tell you where the battle was, but it, you know, it's the chaos of war. Not even York can tell you what actually happened in that ravine, right? So they're just going to make it up, basically. And they're going to use Skay Hill as the source. Yep. So they decide, in their infinite wisdom in the War Department, that we should invite the other men. One big reunion. That'll be great for the news. So they send out invitations to these men. And they can track down most of them. Some of them they can't get a hold of, like Thomas Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the men accept. And so, like, Marathew accepts. Um, Be- Beardsley accepts. Uh, Early accepts. Wills and Kornacki, they accept. Theodore Sock accepts, but the money the Army promised him for travel never shows up, so he can't afford to go. Okay. Um, but it basically, I mean, the, the invitation says... Uh, Sergeant York is coming to the show. We'll be here for three days. We would like to have you as one of the survivors of this fight. Come also. The army will pay for your trip. Great. Well, the, the war department, and the army didn't consider that with this announcement would come the publicity that the other men could use to finally tell their stories. So all of a sudden you get newspapers coming out with articles like, um, says York got credit due all. Sergeant Early tells how 132 were captured. Or the negative. Vets seek to dim the glory of Sergeant York. Or attempt made to oust Alvin York. So the articles are all over the place. But basically what these articles say, and the men, especially Early, he says, it was not a single-handed thing. We were all there. We were all a part of this battle. You should not be telling everyone that we did nothing, because we did. All right, they're not saying York's, you know, an asshole and that York did nothing. They're saying that simply we were a part of this too, damn it. Yep. And you're not talking about it. And it gets really bitter. Um, not from the men. Their statements are very tame. That Alvin York got all the credit that we should have all got. And Early is the main one. He says, I don't want medals for me. I just want to make sure everyone's recognized. And then Beardsley agrees with Early. And Marathew says... Uh, I agree with Beardsley or, or with Early, but I think Early should be given a medal because he got us there safely, and he's the reason we made it alive. Well, the army can't take it back now; it's too late. So the men start arriving to the war college, and when they're met by an officer, they tell them, "Keep your mouth shut, don't start any fights, um, leave it be. We don't want any trouble." And so the other men kind of keep their mouth shut. Um, and the War Department says, okay, we're good. But now the story's out and people are asking questions. And it turns out that Bernard Early was actually recommended for the Distinguished Service Cross after the war, but he never got it. And so all these things start hitting the news and the War Department's got to cover their ass. 
And so the War Department says that all six members of the squad that are there will get the DSC. So the War Department comes out like, okay, we're going to award these other guys medals, basically to calm them down. And the other men know this is wrong. They're pissed off. Early and Beardsley refuse to stay at the War College. They go get a hotel in D.C. Otis Merrithew won't even stay the day. He doesn't want to be there with the War Department because the War Department is being horrible to him. They're, they're, they're saying horrible things. Sergeant Harry Parsons actually says to a reporter that he thinks it was Early's fault for getting shot because Early had a bad habit of standing up when he wouldn't uh, shouldn't. And so they're, they're saying that, um, you know, Early got exactly what he deserved, nothing. And they're, they're just saying horrible, disparaging comments. So now the War Department's changing their tone. They're saying, we're going to give awards to the other men. And, and then... This okay, is, now, this is interesting. This is an interesting thing in the book about, about Sergeant Harry Parsons because um, his his change in his tone in 1929 seems so uh seems rather shocking to me like he's he's he speaks very poorly of of bernard early but Mm -hmm. it was bernard early that was chosen yeah sergeant harry parsons to lead that 17 man like suicide patrol and um i mean i don't think you know, I, I'm I'm not inside Sergeant Parsons' head, but like, I don't think he would be like, yeah, let me get rid of this guy. You know, I'll send him on this suicide mission. I'd rather, as as is, I I think more, uh, more confidently pointed out is that like, uh, um, Bernard Early was chosen to lead this patrol because of his skill. As yeah, you don't you don't send an idiot on a suicide mission that you think is important. Yeah, what I just said in like 500 words, man. I'm sorry. No, no, you're absolutely right. You know, it has to be said. And it's ridiculous to see the 180 he pulls. Though, I will say, again, just like Duncan and Lindsay, Parsons takes lots of photos with Alvin York and attaches himself to York as well. Mm -hmm. Because part of my argument is that after York, you know, does his own thing and tells people about it, York becomes a victim. Like everyone uses York's story against him for their own for their own game. The officers use it for their own game. Now the War Department's using it for their game, right? So York is stuck now. He's trapped in this story. Um, but at the War Department, they're saying, "No, nah, we're not gonna. We're gonna give you all medals." And then the next day rolls around, and they change their story. And now it's, "Well, there's some red tape, and we can't give you any." And then the last day of the event, they decide Sergeant Early will receive a DSC. So now they have to admit that in 1920, Sergeant Early was recommended by the, for the Distinguished Service Cross by G. Ever Buxton and many of the other officers that signed off on it. Mm-hmm. So Early was recommended for the DSC. It was sent to the War Department and buried. Now... Buried by who, you might ask? Well, guess who are the officers that work for the War Department in the 1920s and 30s? Major General Duncan and Lindsay. So the files go to Duncan and Lindsay, and they bury it. Will not do it. So at the War College, now that this has come out, that the War Department buried Early's Distinguished Service Cross Citation, 
Harry Parsons changes his tune and writes the other affidavit needed to give him the DSC. And so on that day, October 5th, 1929, uh, Bernard Early is awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. All right. And that's great. It's great for Early. He yeah. receives the recognition he deserved. Yep. But none of the other men did. No one did. And it shows, as uh, Bulkley Griffin, the reporter who was there, um, he wrote later that the department basically just treated these men horrible and informal intimations played a sharp trick on the seven others uh, who have got nothing but hints. None of them will reply because they think they have a chance of getting an award. And, but the fact is they were hushed up in some way, right? Everything was serene on the surface, but that apparent serenity hit a good deal of devious maneuvering. All right. So that's on the part of the war department. The war department is playing this up that, you know, he says right here today, one of these same officers who had threatened insurgency and called early quote, all sorts of names and said he got all he deserved. Nothing. That would be Parsons. Today, one of these same officers admitted that he was the one who recommended the medal for early. Right. So there's a lot of you got caught and now you've got to own up to it wasn't single handed that these other men deserve recognition. And so after that, the doors open and the other men want their credit. Now, Bernard Early, he goes back to New Haven and they actually celebrate Bernard Early Day. Right. And great. They have a parade and uh, they invite York. He never shows up. Um, Buxton's invited. He sends a letter. But Marathew goes, Pierce goes, and there's this big celebration for Bernard Early. Right. But now the word's out that there were other men involved with Alvin York. And so that November, November 11th, there's an article nationally syndicated about these other men and what they've been doing. And while Alvin York has been given ranches and homes and all this money, the other men, you know, are getting by, mm -hmm. you know, barely. And that's where we are now, the thirties where these other men are, are, have been pushed aside by the war department and lied to and told they'd be getting awards that they never got. So we get the thirties, um, you know, you've got the war college, um, the, the, this sort of like public relations fiasco here for, mm -hmm. um, for the war department. Um, the men don't get, um, many of the men other than, than Bernard early, they're, they're, they don't receive the recognition, um, that they, they felt due to them. Right. Um, and, and the, the army talks about how like there was there was a time limitation on when the DSC could could be awarded. So yeah, uh, sorry guys, time limit ran out. You know we can't we can't do it now. So and and they're sent shuffling off. So we get the 1930s. Um, now, of course, in the 1930s, Germany begins rearming. The Nazis rise to power. You know, and by the late 30s, you know, storm clouds are brewing you know there's another war coming. Um, yeah. Now, um, want to move into talking about um, the Sergeant York film. Um, so in the early years of World War II, Alvin York, you know, a veteran of the previous war, had seen the horrors 
Um, I mean, he he was there fighting that day on October 8th, and he he fought on, just like you said. Like, the 82nd Division wasn't done that day. They kept on fighting, and and York saw saw more action along with with the rest of his um of his comrades who who were left in in company G um but now but now 20 years later um York is is he's, he's a bit of an isolationist here he's like you know look we we don't need to be getting involved um in this in this next war um so with that York is an isolationist like how does how does the movie, how does the film Sergeant York like get made? Sure. Well, you know, you get um, all these things come out. Jesse Lasky, the producer at Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. wants to make this movie and he wants to make it with York. And Warner Brothers, I mean, they're Jewish. They've been putting out movies that have been anti Hitler. They're, you know, almost pro war movies. Mm-hmm. And they want to make one on Alvin York. And so. They decide, they get him, they finally convince him to agree to make a movie. Um, first, he wants it to be only about his life and religion after the war. Yep. They want it to make a war movie. There's some compromise, and the agreement ends up that he gets full control of the movie. They can spend all the money, make the movie, and in the end, if he vetoes it, contract says it's done. So he gets full control, and this is one of those moments where this is like the first time a biography is made about someone who's still living. So with that news about this comes out that there is a movie being made, uh, about Alvin York and uh, about Alvin York and the other men want to know, well, if they're making this movie about Alvin York, are we going to be in it? Or is this going to be another single-handed myth? You know, and these guys are still frustrated. I mean, they there is no single-handed story here. It's a story of 17 men. Mm-hmm. And so Otis Marathew writes a letter to uh, Warner Brothers saying, hey, we heard you're making this movie. We want to make sure that we are at least mentioned. We want to make sure we – there's no mention of money. If you read any other author, they keep saying, well, they just wanted money. There's not a single mention of payment in any of these letters early on, right? There's no, they just want recognition of their roles. That's it. Well, this creates a conundrum with Warner Brothers because what are they going to do? So they think about it and they decide that it'll just be easiest to pay them off and get them to sign dot waivers so they can be shown in the movie so they get a guy named bill guthrie and bill guthrie worked for the fbi and they have him track down these men so bill guthrie starts looking first one he finds is otis Merrifew. so he goes to visit otis Merrifew, and while he's there he basically convinces Merrifew that you know the story will be how you want it he even and i put for those of you that are watching this video these are original letters by Bill Guthrie. And in them, he says that uh, he believes that Matthew should be hired to be there on set when they do the battle scene so that the other men are represented. And he tells Otis, look, you know, I'll do everything I can. He even signed his early letters as Uncle Bill because he sends Matthew's kids stuff. 
You know, they've got a relationship here. Yep. And yeah. Marathew believes him that things are going to go, you know, according to the reality of the story. And so uh, Guthrie pays Marathew $250 for the signature. Okay. And then he moves on to the other man. But here's the thing. He doesn't pay the other man $250. He starts finding ways to pay them less and less and less. And for comparison, he paid Captain Danforth $1,500. Which Someone who time, wasn't even involved in the fight. Yeah. He's $1,500. And in that time, $1,500 was a substantial sum of money. As yeah. they protested uh, in, in the... In, in your book. so Yeah, it's a substantial sum of money at that time. And so Danforth gets paid $1,500. Matthew gets $250. And then by the end, Patrick Donahue, who is not only a Silver Star recipient, but also the Purple Heart, he gives him $5. Wow. And Warner Brothers even finds this. There's a letter between them where the Warner Brothers lawyers are saying, these other guys are claiming that Guthrie basically abused their situations and manipulated them. And we can't get uh, Guthrie to give us a straight answer on how he got these signatures. And some of these men, like Donahue's obviously suffering from PTSD. He's right. become an alcoholic and Guthrie finds him in a bar and gives him five bucks to sign a piece of paper. And all these other men start talking to each other. And they're saying, hey, I got paid this money. And Matthew says, I got paid 250 And I was told you were going to get paid 250 And they say, no, we weren't. We were paid $10. And then it breaks in the news. And the newspapers start talking about how all these men got paid $250, which is not true. All right. So at all this time, you've got the news media telling everyone these men got paid. The men are have been told they will be represented in the movie. And they were not paid what they were supposed to. And then the screenwriters, uh, they, and this is from a letter from one of them, Abe Finkel. He said, I heard it rumored that someone got the bright idea to bring out Corporal Cutting as a tech on the picture. Um, he said, uh, I doubt uh, if anything could antagonize York more than letting Matthew Cutting anywhere near this picture. So they don't want the men anywhere near it yep. because York doesn't want them near it. And all of a sudden the news is saying, hey, we, they got all paid. And no, they didn't. So then the men start writing letters saying, what is this about us getting paid $250? So then Warner Brothers decides it's just easier to pay them off. And so they cut checks for all the men for $250. And then they make their movie. And if you, you've seen the movie, there's it's horrible. Uh, Early is being seen as this drill sergeant who hates York for his religion, which is not true. Um, the other men aren't even mentioned. Early is the only one really pictured. And then at one point, York says, Cutting, Kornacki, Donahue, you know, go guard those men. That's it. That is the full extent of the other men's representation in that movie. In the battle... Uh, the battle scene in the background, you see some of the Americans shooting their guns, which is like the only accurate thing in that. But then when they come back for the investigation, Buxton says, wow, York 
you really were the only one firing your weapon. And so the movie creates this, this myth of Alvin York did it all by himself and cements it into popular culture. And once something cemented into popular culture, there's no getting back. It's like in a modern day example, Hacksaw Ridge, right? Everyone loves that movie. It's a great movie, but he was never court-martialed. He was threatened with a court-martial, but Desmond Doss was never court-martialed. And now people that only see that movie, they think that's the reality of it, but it's not. Right. And I bring Desmond Doss up because he's from Lynchburg, Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, so too is Thomas Johnson, one of the other 16. Oh, he's also from Lynchburg. Um, but, I mean, that's the movie. It comes out and becomes super popular. The Army uses it as a recruitment tool. Gary Cooper wins an Oscar. Um, huge movie. And the other men are nowhere to be seen in it. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you put out you, – you put in that book that, that um, Sergeant York, the film – really cements and as you said earlier it it now creates the york myth um the or the the myth of Sar sergeant york um now earlier um i had a, our next question here was stating that um you know that you said in your book that alvin york himself is a victim of the myth and you know we, you've discussed that like um yeah like he he gets pulled into this as well and it, and the events kind of He's he's like dragged by by the wake, you know, of of this ship that's that's just plowing forward, like with with the story of him. Um, so it's it. Uh, I found that an interesting take on on um, and and rather fair um, in in your work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like about Otis Marathu and uh, his ordeal? Um, to to get an even lower medal than what was originally suggested in in the in the last decades of his life. Sure. So Otis Marathew basically, I mean, he becomes the voice for the other men. Um, he's the one writing the letters to Warner Brothers. He's the one, you know, trying to say that look, we were there too. York is not single handed, um, and he puts the blame on York because in his mind, York's the blame. Now, we can look at it with hindsight 2020, and I can tell you that York was also a victim. Now, it doesn't, you know, say York's not to blame partially. I mean, he's the one that created the story. Mm -hmm. But he becomes a victim of other people's ambition. And Marathew fights. I mean, Marathew was the one in charge. Early, early even signed an affidavit in 1929 saying, I gave verbal command to Otis Marathew. And I've even found accounts from other uh, men who said that they saw Alvin York or Marathew come out of the woods yelling at people, giving orders. Right? He was still up and active and a part of this. He was not out for the count. Right? So Marathew really was the most vocal. And with that, um, Marathew tends to be like the bad guy in all the stories. Well, he never got any award. Nothing. Never a medal. Nothing at all. In the 30s, uh, G. Edward Buxton had actually recommended him for the DSC. But they told him, no, sorry, it's past the due date. doesn't matter. Um, Buxton actually wrote to General Lindsay in the 1930s, and Lindsay told him that he should have recommended all of the men for a Silver Star. 
Um, so these, there are documents in the War Department showing that Marathew should have been given a medal. Never did. And in the 1960s, um, people start to think about the other men. And when York dies in 64, yeah. um, okay. 64. when York dies in 64, people start talking about York again. He comes back into the news. And they think that Od- uh, Percy Beardsley, and this is an image of Beardsley right after the war and then in the 60s when he's older, um, that Beardsley is the last man standing. But he's not. Marathew's still alive. Um, but the men have gone. I mean, the movie cemented the myth, and that pushed the other men out of the story. Right. That's it. There's another war going on. The men do their part. Uh, Like Otis Marathew works in the Boston Naval Yard um, for the war effort. Mm -hmm. So does Beardsley. You know, they all try to do their part. Um, So in the 1960s, with uh, Alvin York's death, Marathew sees it as an opportunity for one last attempt to get some sort of recognition. And so he starts, his daughter actually writes letters to uh, Ed Kennedy, Senator Ed Kennedy, mm-hmm. um, mentioning her grandfather or her father. And nothing comes of that. Ed Kennedy says, well, I, fi- I can see your files here that you were recommended for the DSC um, by Buxton, but uh, there's nothing we can do. And there's even signed affidavits. Marathew got signed affidavits from five of the other men that agreed that he was in charge not York. And then he got, then Buxton wrote an affidavit and five men signed and had him notarized to those. Right. So there's documentation to prove Marathew's telling the truth, but the uh, government won't do anything about it. Too bad. So sad. Well, then Marathew takes one last shot and he writes a letter directly to president Lyndon B. Johnson and Johnson orders them to look into the case, sees that he had been, uh, He had been uh, recommended for a medal. And in 1965, Marathew gets a letter from uh, the Department of the Army saying that uh, there's evidence that you should be awarded the Silver Star. So then what they say is our records show that you were previously informed uh, that to be considered for the award of the Distinguished Service Cross, you must have recommended it within the time limit. So basically... They're showing that a recommendation on your behalf was received in 1932. This is the Department of Army saying it out loud. We received a recommendation for you to get the DSC. But the only reason you can't get it with all these affidavits is because it was too late in the time. Man. Which I will point out that law has been repealed. It was repealed by Bill Clinton. So Mm -hmm. he could still be awarded his DSC. Uh, oh, even today. To this day. Now, granted, his file was destroyed in the National Archives fire. Oh, okay. But I've got signed letters here from the Department of the Army that prove there was a recommendation in his file. Right. And it is signed by the Adjutant General. Right. But on October 21st, 1965, Otis Marathew goes down and he is awarded the silver star and you know to him his grandkids still talk about it uh the little kid here in the photo is grandson jimmy fallon uh not the famous jimmy fallon but right right uh, his grandson i talked to jimmy and jimmy remembers this and his daughters remember it um how proud he was that day and 
there's this really annoying quote by this really crappy author, um, Cahill, Robert Cahill. Uh, Douglas Mastriano uses him as a quote. He quotes in this event that Marathew says, there was one man that deserves all the credit, and that's Alvin York. He almost captured the whole German army by himself. That's not what was said. I actually pulled the uh, the uh, like signal core file of what was said at this meeting, and in fact, that's not that was never said by anyone. And Otis Marathew closed it by singing his favorite song. He made a speech about draft dodgers during Vietnam '65. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he has the, he sings a song, and that's how they close it. But uh, he dies within a couple years after this, and by 1970, all of the men are dead. Um, the other 16 have all passed away. Um, now it's just their families, and this starts in my book, as you saw that. There's a last chapter, Perpetuation, where I talk about all these authors that picked up the story uh, after their deaths. Mm -hmm. And with their deaths, it adds a new layer to the myth that these men are just bitter and jealous and they wanted money and that is it. They didn't deserve it. And, you know, it's just not true. And I mean, the whole point of this, and I, I, for those of you can see this, I find this very symbolic. Um, I went to go visit Thomas Johnson's grave because he's not too far from me. He ended up moving to Denison, Texas, and that's where he passed away. Mm-hmm. And I went to go visit, and this is how I found it buried. Wow. Right? He was, I mean, and when I say buried, I mean, for those of you who can't see this photo, his headstone was completely underground except for the top inch of white marble. And I dug it out and I contacted a local, um, you know, uh, cemetery, you know, whatever company does uh, headstones. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks to the donations uh, from Mike Birch and uh, myself, we paid to, and his brother, Thomas Johnson's brother also served in, as a medic and they're buried next to each other. So we paid for both of them. And he went out there, dug up their headstones, put a concrete slab and placed them on top. And I think that's very symbolic of what I've tried to do with this story is that these men have been buried by history, by authors, by, you know, hundred years. And the whole point was to bring them to light, to bring their story to light and show people that it is not a single man. It is 17 men who went into that ravine. And after the war, it was the commanding officers, the war department, Hollywood, and then authors and historians that tried so hard to push these other men out of the story because they never bothered to take into consideration their perspective. You know, there's 17 men. Why on earth are our history books written on the perspective of one and ignoring the 10 other survivors? Right. That's always stuck with me. And I think that was the whole purpose of this book was just to bring their stories to light and unravel that myth that they have found themselves stuck in for the last 104 years. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. Um, really, really good way to, 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 to wrap up here um, by, you know, literally trying to, to, to dig these men out, out of the, the you know, the, the 
the dirt of, of, of lost history, you know, like, and, and, and keep the memory of these men alive by, by speaking their names. So it's, it's fantastic. Um, so the book, James, unraveling the myth of Sergeant York, the other 16, um, it is not out yet and will not be out at the time that this podcast episode is released. When will it be released? Well, it will be released on December 19th, but it can be pre-ordered now. So if anyone listening wants to pre-order, I mean, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Texas A&M, University Press, their website. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you can go to Walmart and Target.com if you really want to order a book from there. But the book is available for pre-order. And and what one thing I did want to mention, too, with all this, if I may, um, is that while... I wrote this book and it's been four years, but the reality is this has been a major group effort. This is not just me building on. I mean, you play your own part in this. You were the first person to give me an avenue to speak about this publicly, even before my article, because that's when COVID hit and COVID pushed my article a year. Uh, and so it never, it never even came out when we were supposed to. Uh, so, you know, you gave me an opportunity to talk about this uh, you know, people, obviously, Stephen Gerard, who told me about this and was there the whole time I did the research and traveled with me mm-hmm. and the families. I mean, the the families of these men have been holding on to this this idea and these stories and their documents. And they entrusted them to me. Right? They held on to this so that this story could come to light. And then, of course, you know, you've got all the people that I, I feel so sorry for, but they never get enough attention. All my editors, my friends, Madeline Johnson, and all these people that uh, read through this a million times and made sure. I mean, this was a, it truly takes a village to do something this big. And I want to I definitely thank all of them for this work and all these people that have put their time and effort into this project and put their trust in me to see this thing through. And I hope that the listeners and the readers and anyone who reads this book will realize that the the truth of history is always muddy, but by taking in the new perspectives that we really see just how easily it is to bury something or to hide something in the long run. And it takes a years and years and a mountain worth of research to dig it up and then it takes a whole team of people to be behind the project to actually talk about it so i mean thank you to everyone but thank you mike and for this podcast for three years now (laughs) to to really push this through and i hope that everyone will enjoy the book and i will put this there january 24th next year 2023 i will be doing a presentation uh at the National World War One Museum, and with an exhibit on some of the artifacts from the actual battle site, um, and it's also going to be live, so people can watch it live if they can't make it to Kansas City. Man, that's that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I don't know that I can make it down there, but I, I certainly hope to to, uh, to watch it when it happens. Yeah. So, um, super cool, super cool, James. Thank you for giving me uh, uh, a lot of your time on. Um, on, on a weekday evening here, man, I really, really appreciate it. Um, folks definitely, um, 
links to the book will, will be put in the episode notes. So definitely check it out. Uh, do go out and order the book. It's, you know, make your own decisions, of course. Um, but yeah, it's just, just another further study of, of uh, World War One and, and the lasting impact. That and it, I'm happy to talk about it with anyone. We do have a Facebook page called The Other 16. And I'm more than happy to direct any questions in the meantime, before or after the book, on that site and do what I can. I also plan on releasing all the documents that came from these private collections so that anyone can read the documents and make up their own opinions on what they see. Well, that's that's fantastic. That's awesome. That's super cool. And, um, you know, we'll we'll uh, when you have that that information out definitely send it my way and I'll, I'll help uh, share it, you know, how, however I can so that again, folks can, can read and they can form their own opinions. So, Absolutely. so excellent. James, thank you so much. And uh, if you'll just stay on, I'm going to go ahead and stop recording, man. Thank you again. And um, let's see, let's see when we'll have you on next, man. Hopefully it'll be soon. <laughs>